from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Fighting claims of market monopoly with change. There was an historic meeting, and in my lifetime, nothing like this has ever happened before. How an unprecedented meeting among cattle groups is aimed at producing unprecedented results. A fight to beat COVID turns into a fight to save his family farm. There's a couple from South Carolina opened the bidding on this farm. The story of the lone survivor of five brothers in Oklahoma and his fight to keep the farm. A grain elevator rocks an Iowa community with no injuries. We'll tell you what sparked the sudden boom. And in John's world, a surplus of shortage. Now for the news, three small refinery exemptions granted by the Trump administration have now been vacated by a court. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit announcing the decision this week. This started back on January 19th, EPA issuing the RFS compliance waivers the day before President Biden took office. In April, his administration then asked the court to vacate those waivers, adding they believed the previous administration had not fully analyzed the situation. Well, the Tenth Circuit Court agreed, allowing the waivers given to Sinclair's Wyoming refineries to be pulled back. The Renewable Fuels Association says, quote, if these exemptions had been allowed to stand, they would have erased RFS blending requirements for 260 million gallons of low carbon renewable fuels, end quote. Well, for the first time, we're hearing from President Biden's administration about how biofuels could play a role in Biden's net zero carbon goals. And new support for the industry comes in the form of funding research projects. The U.S. Department of Energy announcing 15 new research projects in biofuels that will get a combined $35 million. It says the projects will advance new technologies targeting the biorefining process used for energy, transportation, and agriculture. In an effort to cut CO2 waste, the research will focus on things like improving the fermentation process. The agency says the projects are at colleges, universities, and labs across nine states. And from biofuels to electric, a popular pickup truck is going electric. Ford announcing a fully electric version of its F-150 called the F-150 Lightning this week. The company says the new electric truck can go 0 to 65 in 4.5 seconds with more than 560 horsepower. It's expected to have a range of 230 to 300 miles depending on which version you buy. It comes with a frunk, a trunk under the hood. Ford says the Lightning will have a starting price that's less than $40,000. Well, 60% of the nation's cow herd is now in areas where there is some level of dryness. That's forcing cows to the processor in numbers not seen in a decade. The latest drought monitor showing 46% of the country is now in some level of drought, much of it out west. However, there's growing concern in portions of the plains with drought intensifying as summer weather arrives. Now, some areas of Texas did receive rain this week, but according to drovers, pastures aren't greening up, and that's already forcing cows to slaughter. The cow slaughter for March of this year was up 10% over last year already and April was up four to five percent over last year and that's after last year 2020 beef cow slaughter was up seven percent that was the highest beef cow slaughter since 2010. 
And to give you a better idea of what we're talking about, USDA, they came out with the latest report on pasture and range conditions this week. 43% of pastures are reported in poor to very poor condition. That's only 1% better than last week. It was 16% a year ago at this time. Arizona is reported with 88% poor to very poor, followed by North Dakota at 75%. Utah at 71% and 65% of New Mexico seeing its pasture and range conditions in poor to very poor conditions. Well, it's the opposite problem in the south right now. Too much rain, heavy rains in southeastern Texas and southwestern Louisiana, leading to flash flooding situations like the one you see here in Lake Charles, Louisiana. It's estimated 12 inches of rain fell in Lake Charles. The area is still recovering from two hurricanes and an ice storm that have hit the area just in the past year. Well, inflation concerns could start impacting one of the largest beef exporters. The U.S. may get a bump in beef exports following newly imposed limits by Argentina, the country announcing it's limiting shipments of beef in an effort to control runaway inflation. The president telling a key beef export association that it won't be allowed to sell beef abroad for 30 days. During the period, the government will have a set of emergency measures for the industry. The country's beef exports have soared in recent years, mostly thanks to China making big buys. But the country has been worried about falling domestic consumption and prices rising an average of 65 percent recently in butcher shops in Buenos Aires. Well, things look to be back on track for the National FFA Convention in 2021. FFA says its 2021 National Convention will be held in person next October back in Indianapolis. The organization says members have shown resiliency in the ability to adapt due to the pandemic. The event is expected to include both in-person events and a virtual program. Students can get more information at convention.ffa.org. Well, some areas getting pummeled with rain this week. That includes portions of the plains. We'll get a check of weather with Mike Hoffman next. It starts with a plan. That's why America's Conservation Ag Movement is inviting you to get your farm business ready for 2021 with a free resource stewardship planning guide. Get your free guide today at agweb.com ACAM. Meteorologist Mike Hoffman joins us now with weather. Mike, we're hearing reports of places in the plains that saw eight inches of rain this past week. Even West Texas getting to drink a stormy week for many across the country. That's for sure. Good morning, Tyne. You know what you need to end a drought is you just need a pattern to just bring in a bunch of moisture and it rains a whole bunch. Because once you're into a drought, once you're into a dry situation, there's no evaporation going on or very little of it, and you can't get things popping up and developing. So that's what we had happen over Texas and Oklahoma. So those dry areas have been helped, but it's been too wet, obviously, in many places, especially over in Arkansas and Louisiana, where they were already wet to begin with, and the root zone still shows that. Very dry over North Dakota and it's getting drier, unfortunately. I see some scattered stuff for you folks, but I don't see widespread rainy pattern yet. Very dry west of the Continental Divide, obviously, as well, and there are some really dry pockets in the northeast. Now, as far as the long-term drought, the drought monitor, there's that uh, part over North Dakota, and in fact, there's a brand new exceptional drought area, north-central portions, and that drought's been expanding a little bit into South Dakota, into eastern Montana. It's staying the same from uh, New Mexico westward. This will probably be improving a little bit more as we head through the next few days. All right, here's the jet stream. Uh, we see the heat has been there for a few days now. Great Lakes all the way down to the Gulf Coast. Watch what happens. This trough kind of digs into it, and it flattens out that uh, big ridge. 
and by Wednesday of this coming week we uh, see some cooler air coming into the Great Lakes northern Mississippi Valley but that may not last real long because it's going back to a ridge over the Great Lakes by the time we get to the end of the week but this trough out west probably going to dig in again I see kind of things moving from west to east, which is good news. Hopefully we can get some moisture for you folks in the far northern plains. But uh, this model shows most of the really chilly air staying north of the Great Lakes as we head through next weekend. But that is not as warm as this coming weekend. So let's go day by day. On Monday, there's that humid air south of the uh, warm front, east of the cold front, scattered showers and thunderstorms along the cold front and the warm front. Cooler air out west, obviously, with that next system coming in. Uh, that northern uh, system moves into eastern Canada by Wednesday, trailing cold front with scattered showers and thunderstorms through parts of the Great Lakes into Texas and Louisiana. Another system coming in out west. And that one moves into the northern portions of the Great Lakes by Friday. Scattered showers and thunderstorms with that. Another weak system then coming through uh, the southern portions of Canada. Let's check the 30-day outlook. I'm going to go below normal for uh, parts of Texas and Louisiana because of the very moist ground. You just won't get quite as hot during the day. Above normal east coast, back through most of the Great Lakes and most of the west. Precipitation over the next 30 days. I'd love to not put this here, but we're going below normal for now from the western Great Lakes through the northern plains, northern Rockies, above normal southern half of the plains throughout the southeast. Tyne? Well, was this week's rain enough to calm the commodity markets a bit? Brian Grady and Brian Split, they join us next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, it is the Brian Show. We have Brian Grady as well as Brian Split joining us this week. Brian Grady, you know, when you look at the market action this week, we saw some rains in some areas that needed it. Uh, but, you know, was it really fundamentals or technicals that were at play in this market this week? Well, I, I think a lot of it's money flow, to be honest with you. I mean, we can argue the, the fundamentals of the marketplace as much as we want. There's, there's bullish arguments. There's arguments that we probably are priced too much, too high. Uh, but the money flow, the speculators, what they're doing day in and day out, whether it's money in, money out of the long side of the market right now is the primary driver on that, in, in my opinion. Yeah, and Brian Split, I mean, when you look at the amount of money flow right now and the amount of volatility that we're having, I mean, is there a certain game plan that you're talking to your producers about right now? Uh, well, what we've done recently, we took advantage of the, the break. Uh, December corn had retraced 62% of the quarterly stock report low uh, to the contract high that we retraced 62% of that rally. Uh, so we use that as an opportunity to add back some of the, uh, the options for uh, some coverage to the upside during summer. Uh, now we're focused on what could happen if the December corn market works itself back up into the, uh, what could potentially be a right shoulder on the chart. So I think a lot of the technicians are very well aware of that. Uh, the 590-ish uh, area is going to be what would, would be required to see a right shoulder. Uh, that is also a 62% retracement of the break from the contract high to, yes, the 520 and three-quarter low. Uh, so we're going to be targeting that here in the short term on some continued strength. Well, going back to the fundamentals, Brian Grady, you know, you look at the amount of purchases that China's making when it comes to corn, especially new crop. I mean, we've seen more interest in new crop. So as we see all this interest in new crop and kind of at an unprecedented amounts for this time of year, our old crop, is it not as tight because we have seen some of those cancellations from China? Yeah, we haven't seen a whole lot of cancellations, to be honest with you. And I think we won't, to, to be honest. They, they uh, need the corn. 
uh, flat out they need the corn and, and uh, they wouldn't be buying it as aggressively as they are if they didn't. I think what is more likely is that we may see some of those old crop shipments rolled into the new crop marketing year uh, if it gets to the point where we can't get them shipped by uh, the end of August. And, and so that's the more likely scenario, in, in my opinion. Um, but when we talk about uh, total commitments, both old crop and new crop, uh, we've got over 800 and about 820 million bushels of U.S. corn that has to be shipped to China at some point in time. Uh, that's a, obviously a lot of corn. And the question I have is, is whether or not that has an impact on soybean shipments, not only at the end of this old crop marketing year, which they're slowing seasonally anyway, but in the new crop marketing year next fall when it's typically our, our biggest shipping period for soybeans. Yeah, before we get into soybeans, Brian Split, Grady was talking about how China needed the corn. Why do they need it? What, what's driving these purchases? Well, you've got a, a couple things, and uh, we've talked about Brazil and USDA is at 102 million tons for Brazilian production. Uh, when you look at the amount of Brazilian crop over the next couple of weeks, we're, we're as dry and, and drier than we were in 2018. Uh, at the difference in 2018 at this stage of the year is we were about five days away from some major relief. We don't have that in the next two weeks. So uh, the belief that production could drop down in the low 90s, uh, internally we feel that uh, if we do lose 10 million tons of Brazilian production, uh, that's all going to be out of their export program and that's going to bring the exports back to us. So I think that's a big driver of it. I think the Chinese don't want to be caught without the coverage in front of a U potential U.S. weather market. And the Chinese are saying that their hog herd is going to be back to pre-ASF levels by July and their slaughter numbers are going to be back to pre-ASF levels by November. And to me, their, their buying right now uh, shows us that's truly what they believe. Brian Grady, I know you talk to Dr. Michael Cordonier often, uh, Pro Farmer does, and, and really values his insight. What is the consensus when it comes to the Brazilian crop? Well, he's at 97 million tons and, and declining on that. And, and his uh, worst case scenario right now is 85 million tons. So um, somewhere probably between that mid 90s and, and mid 80s is the, the falling point and where we'll end up. And, and uh, you know, significantly reduced crop from what we anticipated. And like Brian said, uh, that increases the export demand from China for U.S. corn and, and also from others. But uh, China, they're going to get their corn. The rest of the world now has to be sitting there going, oh, my gosh, what you know, how, where are we going to get our supplies from? Because Brazil doesn't have as much. Uh, China's taken the U.S. supply. Now we have to go to Ukraine, those types of things. So th this has ripple effects uh, throughout the uh, global marketplace. Yep, ripple effects when it comes to corn, ripple effects when it comes to soybeans. We're going to dig into soybeans a little bit more, plus get into livestock later on U.S. Farm Report. Well, there may be a positive that comes out of all the shortages gripping manufacturing to consumers right now. John Phipps explains in John's World. This has been a cool spring around here and we've been in no rush to open the pool. To begin with, we've learned to wait until the helicopter seeds from the silver maples surrounding the pool have petered out. More importantly, when you get up every morning and put on a flannel shirt, that's not prime swimming weather. But with the crops planted and no other good excuse, I pulled off the cover and did the rough vacuuming to begin with. And Jan began managing the pool chemistry, all in hopes of barely tolerable water temperatures when grandchildren visit at the end of the month. No, I will not pay for LP to warm it up in May when the water gets too dang warm in August. Okay, I have been reading about possible shortages of chlorine, which 
pool owners use to kill the bad stuff in the water. Now Jan had plenty left over from last year, but the shortage has turned out to be a real thing. We're hunting, uh, we, we've hunted some down like it was toilet paper. But it's looking like 2021 will be the year of, we can't get that. The reasons are varied. The pandemic, when the manufacturers slowed production and shippers idled ships and trucks. The freeze in Texas, where much of our feedstock chemicals are produced. A fire in a Louisiana chemical plant. Continued effects of the trade war. Shifts in consumer demand toward online retail requiring more packaging material and, pan and shipping. The pandemic spike in India, which has crippled major ports for this important source for many of our imports. Hackers shutting down a pipeline. Bet you didn't have that on your bingo card either. And trickle-down effects of the microchip shortage we talked about earlier, which we are only beginning to grasp. The result is kind of a whack-a-mole collection of seemingly unrelated shortages, from chlorine to ketchup packages, to chickens, to pickups. It's almost impossible to predict which thing we want to buy won't be available tomorrow. This gets us to the tragedy of the toilet paper, today's version of the tragedy of the commons. Prudent actions by individuals like stocking up on suspected soon hard to find items can create those very shortages and impose unnecessary burdens on all consumers. If we all just bought what we need, yada yada, and that's not going to happen. One good thing may come out of this though. The practice of waiting until the last minute to buy crucial supplies is pretty much over. Aaron is making sure planter upgrades for next year are in our shop. I'm beginning, or I'm planning on bringing forward some computer upgrades and some tool purchases. Okay, that's a bad example since I was thrilled for an excuse to do so. And we're all pondering what product shortage would impose a huge burden in the near future. Up next, some classic iron tractor tales happens in just two minutes. Join Andrew McRae for Farming the Countryside, a farmer-focused podcast all about production agriculture. Brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven, the nitrogen-producing microbes that stay put, whether or not. Visit pivotbio.com. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week we're going to head to the Show Me State and we've got a hedgerow special for you. We brought four tractors and they're all different. Uh, my favorite is the 1935A John Deere and it's been in the family for six generations. Grandpa Davis, he lived down around the sugar tree area. They farmed down in there. Uh, he bought it, then it went to my uncle Warren Davis and he used it to farm with. Then it went to my mother, and then my mother gave it to me, and we still have more generations to come. It was sitting in a hedgerow. It had a hedge limb that big around laying across the gas tank and uh, the hood, and the steering rod was bent. So it did had some, and it was stuck, and nobody had messed with it for 30 years probably. My dad helped me with it. Uh, we worked on it one entire winter. We had fun. It's a r very rare tractor. It's an early 35 model. They started making a John Deere's in 1934. And anybody that collects John Deere's knows what an open fan shaft A is. 
and they're really, really hard to find. I like it more every year. I used to tractor pull with it before I knew what I had, and then I realized what I had, so we pretty much quit doing tractor pulling with it. Yeah, I'm gonna hand it down one of these days. It, it won't be worth anything to them because I'm gonna tell them never to sell it. So it's really a burden instead of, but some of them I think want it, and I think it'll get taken care of. Well, an unprecedented meeting and one that attendees hope will produce unprecedented results. That's as the cattle industry makes major calls for change. We'll tell you about it next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, who would have thought that one meeting could create so much buzz? But that's what happens when you get six groups, typically at odds, sitting around the same table and then finding areas on which they can agree. Those involved say it was a historic meeting, but they hope now it will make historic changes. And that's this week's Farm Journal Report. Calls for change came to a head last week. It was it was an historic meeting and in my lifetime, nothing like this has ever happened before. That's as six livestock groups held a closed door meeting with U.S. Cattlemen's Association calling it an unprecedented move. This was a pretty drastic meeting because never before had six six groups gotten together like this and uh, there'd been so much consensus and, and agreement. Six groups typically at odds found common ground. That's as representatives from RCAF, NCBA, U.S. Cattlemen's Association, American Farm Bureau, National Farmers Union, and the Livestock Marketing Association all came together in Phoenix. A meeting spearheaded by the Livestock Marketing Association, a group that says the idea to collaborate was born from conversations with lawmakers. When you bring those up and they say, how can we help? And we tell them, well, maybe you ought to, you know, this is one way to do it. And they say, well, that sounds real good. But last week we had an organization in here that said we should do this thing. And there's one coming in next week and they're going to say something yeah. different. Why can't yeah. you guys ever get together and agree on something so we can help you? As the groups all sat around the same table, U.S. Cattlemen's says the Livestock Marketing Association took the needed first step. A terrible way right now as far as uh, our market conditions and uh, the sustainability of production agriculture and and livestock production in this country and something uh, drastic needs to be done. The headline from the meeting, how to address packer concentration. We have four, great, four major multinational uh, packers that uh, control well over 80 to 85 percent of the market. It's obvious through uh, the market fundamentals where they're making currently, uh, we're hearing they're making profits of up to $1,000 a head uh, on these animals and Feedlot operators, feeders, cattle producers, backgrounders, stockers, they're all they're going out of business because it's not profitable. Miller says instead of a free capitalistic market, U.S. cattle producers are faced with packer concentration and monopoly. We have a monopolized market and we and everything that we do has something to do to try to uh, level the playing field. The six groups agreed on five other focus areas, including price transparency and discovery, packer oversight, packer capacity, and the Packers and Stockyards Act enforcement. We basically worked a lot on trying to improve price reporting and also um, getting the Department of Justice to follow through with their investigation. Those same issues are also now in the spotlight by lawmakers. One is a transparency issue, it's obviously, but there's also, it goes, I think, beyond that. 
and the question of whether or not um, Packers are in a position to be able to manipulate prices in a way um, that is adverse to uh, the profitability of those who are in production agriculture, those who are actually out there uh, raising livestock. Senator John Thune, a Republican from South Dakota, was one of several lawmakers who sent a letter to the Department of Justice this week urging the DOJ to move forward with their investigation in the meatpacking industry. We're trying to rectify that by uh, building additional pressure on the Department of Justice to take take a look at this issue and, uh, and, and to really do an examination of whether or not there are violations of antitrust laws here. Thune says the investigation was jump-started a year ago, but the department has yet to produce results. These margins are not within the range of what would consider, consider to be normal. And so I think the producers uh, sincerely believe, and uh, with good reason, if you look at the evidence, the, the statistics uh, don't lie, that there's something going on out there. The evidence and statistics are shown here. According to USDA economic research data, as consumers continue to pay record high prices for beef, cattle producers' share of that dollar continues to diminish. But the North American Meat Institute, which represents meat packers, responded this week and defended its members against allegations of wrongdoing, saying the market remains fair and competitive. A spokesperson said, quote, in July 2020, USDA analyzed the effects of the 2019 Holcomb facility fire and the pandemic, finding no wrongdoing and confirming the disruption in beef markets was due to devastating and unprecedented events, end quote. Yet senators and cattle groups aren't stopping. I think this is where the Department of Justice can help us is are there violations of existing antitrust laws um, that need to be, does the, does the Justice Department need to be enforcing the Packers and Stockyards Act, for example, or are there changes we need to make? Are, are these laws so um, old and antiquated that they don't reflect what's happening in a modern world. There's already legislation to address some of the issues, which includes Nebraska Senator Fisher's Cattle Market Transparency Act, which was introduced in 2020. Several proposals on the table as cattle groups say the calls for change are multifaceted. We also discussed trying to figure out how the government can make it easier or incentivize uh, small and medium-sized packers uh, throughout the country to, to uh, start popping up and, and uh, to increase competition that way. The cattle groups involved in the May meeting reiterate it's just a starting point. This is just a beginning and a very good one, but there's still work to be done. A group effort to fight market monopoly as the calls for change heat up. Well, there were signs of good beef and pork demand in the markets this week. We'll talk about it with Brian Grady and Brian Split next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Well, back to the Brian Show. Brian Grady and Brian Split joining us this weekend. All right, Brian, Brian Split. I mean, Grady was just talking about in our last roundtable about how tight supplies could be, okay? And when you look at soybeans, though, right now, I mean, it seems like we need to plant every single acre, acre that USDA said farmers intended to plant back in March. Correct. Um, and so recently we've had some private uh, analyst estimates of what the corn acreage could be and uh, that estimate was a full 5.7 million acres above the current usda number uh, and I, I think we priced that was part of the mechanism of, of why we uh, dropped so precipitously in corn but i think now there's a, a evolution of the market where we're starting to wonder is that really even realistic when you look at input costs this spring uh, when you look at the idea of handling less product a lot of the producers that I have talked to have said, no, we're not going more corn, we're going more soybeans. 
so then you look at how much corn is retraced of the quarterly stock report low to the contract high, and, and we talked about that 62%. November soybeans have only retraced 38% of that. So um, this the soybean market may have a little bit more to go to the downside if we start going into the conversation of uh, potentially having some of those acres shift more heavily to beans than corn. Yeah, Brian Grady, I mean, is soybean basis trying to tell us something? Because we've heard that soybean basis isn't as favorable as it, as it was just a, a couple weeks ago. Well, soybean basis fell because, uh, one, it, it reached extreme levels uh, because of the, of the whole um, Brazilian delays and, and pushing more demand to the United States early in the spring. Uh, but two, it's backed off because seasonally uh, Brazil is taking over on the exports, which it does normally in any normal year anyway. So uh, I, I think that that's the biggest thing on, on the basis play in soybeans. Uh, you know, you just take a, a step back and the 30,000 foot view is that uh, soybean basis is still very strong uh, because of the tight supplies, as is corn basis. Yeah, Brian, I mean, when you look at the livestock side, I mean, we've seen volatility, of course, on row crops. We're seeing this volatility with when it comes to livestock. But this week, when you look at the price action, does it show that that the protein demand, that that side of it is there this year and, and strong? Are prices indicating that? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, you're, you're seeing uh, box beef prices. If you take out last year's COVID-induced price rally, uh, these would be historic prices that we've never seen before. And, and uh, you know, it's it's U.S. demand, domestic demand here uh, as we reopen our economies, as restaurants reopen, those types of things. It's also export demand. The export demand is really strong right now. Um, pork is also strong with the demand for both of those reasons as well. And you've got them competing against each other. And now we're coming up to the critical grilling season demand period. So, uh you know, at this point, the, the wholesale markets for both beef and pork are absolutely on fire. Yeah. And at the same time, I mean, I know that we did have some some nice rains in some of those drought stricken areas. So that was good to see in portions of the plains. But at the same time, I mean, not only because of the drought, but also these higher feed costs. Brian, we're hearing Brian split about some some possible liquidation. Right. Uh, so just this morning, we had uh, a client from Missouri call and said that in his area, they're seeing solid liquidation. Uh, and it's one of those things when, when you think back to, you know, one of the terms you hear a lot when we're trading three to $4 corn, we're just gonna market this corn off the farm, we're gonna hoof it off the farm. And now when you have $7 plus cash corn, that doesn't look as viable. So uh, I, I think it's a lot harder to, to put that, that $7 corn in an animal. Uh, it's a lot easier to market that $7 corn. And, and so we're seeing um, some pressure on, on the liquidation side because of that. Real quick, Brian, Grady, are you surprised that we're not seeing more demand destruction considering where we do have grain prices right now? Yeah, honestly, uh, we should be rationing uh, the demand, uh, slowing down the, that use. And, and uh, quite honestly, because of China, and you can tie it almost all back to China, that, that isn't happening. We are seeing some of that on the soybean side of things. The crush rate has slowed three months in a row now, uh, year over year. And uh, the exports are slowing seasonally. So now it's a matter of how much supply we have and how much we can get into the processor's hand and into the exporter's hand into the end of the year on soybeans. On the corn side, it, it's just a matter of how much China needs. And keep in mind, China is very price conscious when it doesn't necessarily need the supply. When it needs the supply, price goes out the window and, and they'll buy what they need. Yeah, Brian Grady, Brian Split, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. 
Well, siblings that were inseparable, living together on the family farm, that was everything to the Anna Schott's livelihood. Until COVID-19 tore through, our reporting partners at KFOR News Nation in Oklahoma have the story of loss and a survivor who is now in a fight to save his family farm. The Anishad Homestead sits in the shadow of an industrial wind farm on the Kingfisher County side of Okarchi. Out of the dairy, the sheep left, and I don't have any cattle, any stalker steers. Everyone in the county knows the Anishots. Art and Ruth raised 10 kids here, 800 acres northeast of town. The Anishots farmed wheat, milked cows, bred sheep, and ran cattle. This was a bustling family farm until COVID wiped them out. Me and a one-eyed dog. <laughs> oh, buddy. The Anishot brothers ran the LLC, Nick, Paul, and Ron. All three got COVID and died in the span of a week. People wanted to buy that swing the day of the sale, and I said, this swing ain't going anywhere. Larry is the baby of the family, number 10, and never officially listed on the LLC. When his brothers died, the farm went to all surviving beneficiaries. It's very weird coming in here like this. Six family members who couldn't agree on how to divvy up the assets. I was 12 years old when I moved back out here. And so the inheritance went to auction. The last time we all got together was here at this house. Sold off in pieces. The house, six tracts of land, trucks, trailers, tillage, the spoils of a dairy farming empire, all of it to the highest bidder. The night before auction, Larry prayed for a sign. He asked for courage and clarity to honor the legacy of his big brothers, the heartbeat of Anishot Farms. I don't know what God's up to. He's up to something. It's not over yet. Larry walked into that auction barn, his son by his side, steadfast and hopeful, determined to buy back the farm. What Larry Anishat didn't know is that the whole town of Okarchi was behind him. The folks here had decided not to bid on the farm. But there were some out-of-state buyers at that auction, and they wanted his land. They were expecting a 1,000 people out their day of auction. There's a lot of talk at the auction that, you know, people from overseas we're gonna bid online. The price of land in rural Oklahoma has skyrocketed over the years, shored up by oil and wind power. There was a couple from South Carolina opened the bidding on this farm. As the bid price inched toward Larry's limit, the cattle rattle went silent. Supposedly somebody went outside the shed doors that, that, that was bidding outside and said, let it, let it go, quit bidding, he's got it. And it was over. Larry bought the farm. When we did finally uh, sell it, you know, the whole barn. That place went nuts. People clapped and cheered. I had people coming over to me, giving me a hug. Most of the barn erupted into uh, cheering for Larry. So it was a good day. To be clear, he bought the most important portion of the ranch, 160 acres, all the barns, and his childhood home. I didn't buy this for me. <laughs> I bought this for my mom and dad, my four brothers. 
because of that bond. Larry will begin again where it all began, a fresh start for a brother brokenhearted. And they're still here. They are. They're watching me. They know it's too much for one person. They do. But they got more power now than they did when they were here. They really do. And I believe that. The lone surviving farmer sowing seeds for a new era at Anishot Farms. Allie Meyer, Oklahoma's News 4. Wow, thank you again at KFOR for sharing that story. And Allie says Larry also tested positive. To his surprise, he only had mild symptoms, calling himself beyond lucky. All right, when we come back, customer support. It's time to register for Farm Journal Field Days, Hay, Forage, and Cattle Premiums Edition, an interactive online event, June 8th and 9th. Go to farmjournalfielddays.com. As the Biden administration explores possible tax changes, John Phipps talked about the real question farmers should be asking about step up in basis. And you have your thoughts on the topic, too. John shares some of those in customer support this week. I spoke a few weeks ago about the rationale or lack of it behind the basis step up at death. Readers stepped up to offer their thoughts. Tom Edgar from Wolf Creek, West Virginia, thinks it's about inflation. In many cases, the gain was due in large part to three decades of inflation. In other words, you pay tax on inflation. So when you die, your heirs get the stepped-up basis and do not pay that tax on the inflation of long-held assets. Well, this seems reasonable, Tom, but the numbers don't show this to be true. The ERIS at the USDA tracks the effect of inflation, or to put it another way, less valuable money, on farmland prices. This graph compares the two. The distance between the lines is accumulated inflation, which is why they converge on the right. Also note that it ends last June, so the whopping increases we've seen in recent auctions aren't included. Roughly one-third of the price increase in land is from inflation effects. But this is essentially self-canceling, since you're paying those taxes with those less valuable $20-$20. Farmland is worth more now because it generates more income than before, and farmers especially attach economic importance to ownership. This is a real value gain. Randy Charlo, on the other hand, thinks children shouldn't have to pay for parental success. I, for one, don't look at it as something the government is giving me, my heirs, but as a lifetime accumulation on which I am not being penalized. I don't mind paying my fair share of taxes, but my children should not have to pay for any good financial decisions I made. Uh, this is mostly an argument against capital gains taxes per se, and there are valid reasons to oppose taxing capital and powerful reasons why they were begun in 1921. I'll talk more about this next week. The fact that the gains were made by prudent decisions should apply to wealth earned from hard work and sound business decisions in any other occupation as well. Judging the moral value of wealth gain would be a legal and regulatory nightmare. As for children, they don't pay any capital gains tax unless they sell the product of your life's work. So the tax could be avoided altogether. 
Next week, I'll share the surprising, to me at least, answer and try to show how the original rationale behind the basis step-up, which was really hard to find, didn't turn out the way the originators expected for a number of very familiar reasons. Tax accountancy turns out to be more interesting than I thought, but still not very. Thanks, John. And remember, you can email him at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. All right, up next, a grain elevator explosion. We'll tell you what caused the big boom. That's next. Your next piece of equipment is on machinerypeat.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on machinerypeat.com. Well, a massive grain elevator explosion in Iowa jolted one small community this week. Look at this. Frightening moments caught on camera in Jefferson, Iowa. An explosion and fire at a grain elevator. Now, this happened northwest of Des Moines at Landis Cooperative. Amazingly, no one was injured in that explosion. Landis says smoldering grain in a self-contained bin next to the grain elevator caused this. The video was captured on security camera at a neighboring business, which tells us the fire is still smoldering. Such good news. No one was hurt. All right. That's all the time we have this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.